New America NYC event took place on October 6, 2017, and is titled The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap. The event was presented in partnership with the NYU McSalver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. This event features Scott Ann Stringer, Mirsa Biradaran, Blondo Pinnock, Anne Studreyer, Clyde Vanal, and Michael Lindsay. Thank you for that very generous introduction. Uh, thank you, Dr. Lindsay. And I want to thank Alana. And uh, of course, I want to thank Rose Pierre Louis. Rose and I go back a long ways. When I was Manhattan Borough President, Rose was the Deputy Borough President. And uh, early on, representing Manhattanites, we realized that when we were thinking about how to bridge downtown and uptown, we realized that there was a real financial issue in northern Manhattan, that was that so many of the community was unbanked and people didn't have access to financial tools within banks to establish credit history, which would hurt people, establish businesses and create credit to buy homes. It was really a discriminatory practice that went back to redlining in the 60s and 70s, especially where I grew up in Washington Heights. Bertha Lewis remembers this all too well, when banks would literally take a red line and determine which communities they would not invest in, and they didn't have to. And a lot of the lack of economic investment in so many of our communities started because the banking industry was looking for profits, not for investment. In fact, I always say right now that when you see the speculators come into communities like Washington Heights, like East New York, like Brooklyn, it's so ironic that 40 years ago they had no interest in investment, and now they invest because the people who came from the communities made so many of our neighborhoods special. And that, I think, speaks to the issue of the book and the issue that brings everybody here today. And one of the things I wanted to just briefly talk about, because I know you have an amazing panel, Assemblyman Vanell, and so many people who are going to talk to these issues, I just want to talk a little bit about wealth creation in New York City. And I've gotten to see it firsthand uh, as New York City controller. So when I got elected controller, uh, someone who I respect a great deal sat me down and said, you understand that when you're a controller, people are going to make money based on investing the pension fund. Some people are going to get very wealthy. But you un should understand, and you know this in your life experience growing up, the people who make the money are usually the people who already have the money. And you have an opportunity to be a disruptor in that. So when I became controller, the first thing I did was hire a chief diversity officer. And then we looked at city contracts. We looked at the procurement spend in New York City, $15 billion a year in New York City. We spend on hiring law firms, accounting firms. We buy paper clips, pencils, pens, you name it. New York City buys it. We are a real proc uh, procurement machine when it comes to uh, investing in companies and buying goods and services. It probably does not surprise many people in this room that of that 15 
billion dollars spend, only 4.8% go to women and minority-owned businesses. So how are we gonna create wealth in our city if the city government is not a change agent by investing in our companies? Well, we went one step further. I decided that we were gonna letter grade every city agency. We were gonna give them A, B, C's, D's, and F's based on their actual spend. And then we were gonna work with the Black Institute and Bertha Lewis and so many others to say we have to change that. And we have to create a way for small businesses, people of all different backgrounds to invest. That was the first thing we did. Nationally, while we were fighting locally, we started something called the Boardroom Accountability Project. We, for the first time, worked with public pension funds around the country, put together a trillion dollars in assets, and we looked to run independent directors at corporations we invest in as a way of holding them accountable. In America, you can't run an election at a corporation, even if you're a share owner, even if you own the company, unless the board and the company approves it. So we went company by company, started with six companies who allowed what's called proxy access, and then we waged a multi-year battle to get the right to run independent directors. Today, 400 companies, we have won the right to proxy access. But here's why we did it. Thank you. But here's why we did it. We wanted to better have a say in how companies are run because we need them to do well to protect the retirement security of teachers and city workers. And when we looked at those companies and once we got the right to run, we targeted the companies we had concerns about. I was concerned about energy companies that were slow to understand that we actually have a climate problem in the world, right? And we wanted the ability to leverage our pension funds to make change there. The second thing we did was say we wanted CEOs to not be so concerned about their own executive pay. We wanted them to think about their workers and we targeted those companies in proxy access. And then we looked at the companies that didn't reflect this country. So many of these corporate boards were basically all male, they were all pale, <laughs> and they were stale. And now that doesn't mean that every male pale guy is stale, okay? So I don't want you to think that for a second. But it was clear there was no diversity. And diversity gets you better returns. Diversity in the investment world actually is a very powerful financial instrument. But only 21% of the S&P 500 companies today have women on boards. 9% have African-American, 5% have Latinos, 2% have Asians. In this country of ours, with our great diversity, we decided that we were gonna target these companies. So we did two other things. We then said to the money managers in our city, I'm not giving any more money unless you show me your diversity. You cannot continue to take without showing us how a young graduate student who goes to the best schools works the hardest, happens to be a woman, African-American or Latino, gets hired by your company, starts going up the corporate elevator, it gets stuck in the mid-floor, and that individual never gets to the C-suite or the corporate board. If you can't show me the plan and the diversity numbers, you're not doing business with the New York City retirement system, and we're the fourth largest pension fund in the country. That's what we did in the last three years.
And lastly, and lastly, we have now signaled to the 151 companies that we are now, for the first time in the history of public pension funds, demanding data. We want to know the experience of corporate boards, the people of the experience. We want to know their skill set, and we want to know their gender and their racial background, because this is the next fight. And what I would think when, when, we, when you have the discussion about the book today, what I would argue is that it's not just about black and, black and white, it really is about green. It's about wealth creation. It's about giving people the opportunity to do well based on education and fairness, and then allow all communities to grow. For too long, we have had a city that wealth is determined based on zip code and what you look like and what your connections are. And I've decided as controller to put the market down in the time I have left. I want every child, every child, who was told that education is the best vehicle and you should work hard and play by the rules. Well, those rules have to apply to everybody. And when you see books written by an author and a panel like this, the fact that people are here on Friday night to talk about economic justice, to talk about diversity, this is what we have to do in America. I know it's tough given who the president is, but that's not gonna last long. We have to start thinking about how we change this country. And the way to do it is to shed a light on our corporate America companies that basically drive this economy. I know they produce better returns for our retirees when there's diversity, but I also know that we have to have a rational, intelligent conversation about this. So I wanted to come by tonight just to sort of set this, the, the, where we're going with this, what I think our goals are. This is not only about us, and I see some people in the room tonight who obviously have had distinguished careers. This really is about the next generation of New Yorkers. For the kids, we're never gonna meet, but we want them to do well. For me, my wife and I, you know, I have a five and a half year old and a four year old, two sons. They're not my grandchildren, they're actually my children. I know you. <laughs> and I want them to live in a city of great diversity, the same way I grew up in Washington Heights, but I also want them to learn early on that you are gonna be judged by what you have here and what you have here. And this should never matter to anybody, gender, the color of your skin, we have got to change that, and we can do it through our financial services activism and through elected leadership. Thank you very much. Enjoy the panel. Thank you. Thank you, Comptroller Stringer, for those very timely uh, perspectives and uh, for helping to set the context for this evening's discussion. Thank you very much. At this time, I'd like to invite our panel to the podium, please. And while they're coming, I just want to say that um, you're really in for a tremendous treat tonight. This is a very August group uh, of, of, of folks who are going to in, in provide an incredible perspective. And as they come, I'm going to ask that each of the panelists introduce themselves, starting with Marissa, and thereafter, we will begin the conversation with some questions and discussion. Thank you. Um, hi, I'm, I'm Mersa Baradaran. I, um, most importantly, I'm an NYU law grad. Um, I am now, I'm the author of the book, The Color of Money, um, and I'm a law professor at the University of Georgia School of Law. Good evening. 
Good evening, my name is Blondell Pinnock and I'm a Senior Vice President and Chief Lending Officer at Carver Federal Savings Bank uh, located in Harlem. Uh, good evening everybody, my name is uh, Clyde Vanell. I'm a State Assembly Member uh, for the 33rd Assembly District in Southeast Queens. Queens in the house, anybody from Queens? <laughs> um, I'm also, <laughs> Brooklyn is always everywhere. <laughs> um, I'm also the, the chair of the subcommittee for infrastructure and I'm on the banking committee in the state assembly. Hi, my name is Ann Stuhldreher. I'm the director of financial justice for the city and county of San Francisco. And just to check, are there any Californians in the house? <laughs> All right. There's a lot of us, we're everywhere. Well, welcome and thank you all for, for joining us tonight. Um, so the first question is, many argue that issues of income inequality and economic mobility affect poor people, period. And that it doesn't have anything to do with race. How do you respond to that? Well, I guess, I mean, uh, James Baldwin has a, a great quote in one of his books, I can't remember which one, where, you know, uh, there's a, you know, uh, this, uh, uh, Irish guy says, you know, I grew up poor too, and the, you know, uh, his, whoever is talking to him says, yes, but these people are poor because of their color. And so um, the racial um, wealth gap was created based on color. Yes, there are lots of poor people, and being poor is difficult, uh, being poor is expensive, being poor is, you, know, you, you hit against a lot of hard financial objects, a lot of hard legal objects, and it makes your life difficult. But in this country, um, we have segregated um, black uh, communities, we have um, excluded them for years and are still doing so from the main avenues of, of capitalism and commerce, and so it is a racial uh, conversation I mean, we can have that poverty conversation another time, but there's also a huge racial component to it. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I almost want to say, you know, a racial, the racial wealth gap, it's that word gap, that's almost a misnomer mm -hmm. when you look at mm -hmm. the numbers. It's more of like a chasm mm -hmm. or a canyon. Mm -hmm. um, the latest numbers, and Mercer, you know this better mm -hmm. than I do, I think are that, um, for every dollar of white wealth, there's five cents mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, wow. of black yeah. wealth. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, mm -hmm. not an accident, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is driven mm -hmm. by our public policy, um, by our public investment, um, uh, uh, you know, over time. Um, and again, Mercer writes about in, in her book, you know, how, um, what is it, after um, the Great Depression, we know that the way most people build wealth in this country is through home ownership. Mm -hmm. and, um, and of all the heavily subsidized mortgages that were made after the Great Depression over 30 years, only 2% of those went mm -hmm. to non-whites. Mm -hmm to blacks, to, only 2% went to blacks, 98%. So white was defined actually as non-black in you know, post uh, uh, New Deal. And so you know, even Italians and Irish, people who were non-white before the New Deal got to be white afterwards. And so from the years of 1934 until 1960, only 2% of FHA guaranteed loans went to black Americans. And, and on the wealth gap, I mean, I, I cite something in the, in the book where um, after the Emancipation Proclamation, was signed, uh, blacks owned 0.5% of the nation's wealth, which was obvious because right. they were just free from slavery. Today, that number is around 1.5%. So that is not much growth. I mean, it is, uh, that, that's a 
failure of an astronomical level, I think, and that, that is a result of state policy. Um, yeah, I would say to, to deny that um, race has any bearing on the wealth gap um, would be, um, it just would be nonsensical. I mean, we know that there are laws that were put in place to purposely exclude um, blacks from accumulating wealth, from owning property, from owning land, from owning all those um, indicia of, of wealth creation or assets. So to, to have to go from that space to try and gain it is obviously going to be very difficult because you're, you're never going to be on an even playing field when you had laws specifically constructed for the purposes of excluding you from, uh, from the wealth system. I mean, the, the problem is very deep. Uh, you know, as, as everyone else here stated, you know, uh, we, were, uh, we did a, a wealth building program uh, a few months ago when we found out that uh, the uh, average uh, African-American family in the United States uh, wealth is about $4,000, whereas the average uh, white family was uh, around $90,000. So that's a big, as you said, a schism, not, not, a, not, a, not a gap. So one of the things is that, okay, if that's the case, where are we now and how do we change that? How do we turn that around? And given where we are and given the environment that we're in, are we, as being part of the, the government in New York State, are we going where the ball is and not where the ball was? Are we, are we ready for the future? And we'll talk more, uh, more about that, but it's, it's a very big problem. But, so I was in California a couple of weeks ago and I was talking, we were talking about black wealth and I was sitting with a Native American sister of mine oh, yeah. <laughs> who said, they killed us all, they killed my people, right? The, the, the rich ranchers in, and she was in a state, of, she's in the state of Idaho, took my land. I mean, so, you know, the problem is deep. It's deep. So how do we, but given the economy now, given the technology, given what's happening, I live in a, I live in a neighborhood, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's, it's a, a, an area of mostly African Americans, but homeowners, right? Beautiful neighborhood, working class, working class neighborhood. My parents, my mom cleaned off its buildings. My dad drove taxi cabs. They were able to buy a house in Cambria Heights, Queens. Today, even if their kids go to a beautiful institution like NYU, when they graduate, they can't afford to live in a working class neighborhood where they grew up. Now the middle class kids aren't guaranteed, even if they get a beautiful degree from this, this institution, may not be able to afford to live the same standard of living that their working class parents had, they did. We're in a different time, everybody. It's a different time. I want to shift a little bit to uh, policy and um, want you to respond to whether you think policy making shows that it understands the racial component. And if so, how? Please answer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just wanted to comment, and this is more about the broader population than of which policymakers um, are a subset. Uh, but there was an interesting article, I think in the New York Times, showing that it was a survey of Americans and we think that we're much more equal than we are and that we've come uh, much further and that a lot of these problems are, are solved. And um, I think amongst uh, white respondents, um, you know, that 
that misperception was the strongest, but it also persisted for um, African Americans and, and people of uh, respondents of different races and ethnicities as well. So, um, you know, it's just interesting that with the general population, again, mm -hmm. just not um, understanding kind of the size of this schism yeah. mm -hmm. or gap and then what it means, you know, in terms of being able to pass on um, opportunities, you know, to, to your children. I mean, I, I, so I vacillate uh, between policymakers have no idea or they know and they're deeply cynical. So I, I don't know which of those it is, and I think at different times it's been different responses and different policymakers. But I, I do think a little bit of both, maybe. Yeah, I, I do think what what we've had, and this is the history that I outline in the book, is you know several pivot points in racial history where things have come to a boiling point, and the black population has either demanded you know reconstruction land, and what has been the response is you know a savings bank. So no land. The one thing that survives reconstruction is a Friedman Savings Bank. You get a savings account so you can save for land. What happens to that capital? It gets invested away and gone um, in the railroad bonds. And then post-civil rights era, where the civil rights um, leaders are mm -hmm. very clear that it's not just about you know, these, these laws. This is just the first step. The next step that's more crucial is economic justice. And what happens is the script is flip, flipped. Right? Immediately, Nixon responds with, oh, um, we're not going to integrate. We're not going to consider reparations. What you're going to get is black capitalism. And I mm -hmm. outlined this in, in the book. And what black capitalism essentially means is, he calls it, you know, yes, black power and black ownership. But what he means is, you own the problem now. You do your black banks and you do your black businesses without wow. very much infrastructure and support. Exactly. And so, you know, he, we still have that Nixonian infrastructure that was meant to deal with the wealth gap and it has done nothing and i think policymakers even well-intentioned policymakers continue these policies because i think we we are so convoluted the way we talk about race i mean we talk about race all of these programs that were meant to deal with ec the economic wealth gap in the 60s that's how it was talked about now it's talked about as diversity and i and i have issues with diversity you know because i think women don't have the same problems as the black, uh, yes, I think we should get more women on boards and absolutely 100%, but it's not the same thing as closing the racial wealth gap. And so I think we've, and, and part of this is the Supreme Court's fault. The Supreme Court has said that affirmative action is about institutional diversity and not about historic harm. Mm -hmm. um, and when that decision was decided, Thurgood Marshall, this is the Bakke decision in 1978, Thurgood Marshall has this phenomenal dissent, which you all should read, where he says, we, we have not dealt with historical injustice. And this essentially is a death knell to all of these things. And it was. It turned out that in 1978, when the Supreme Court upheld affirmative action, it did so on the wrong grounds. And I think since then, we've been talking about it the wrong way. So policymakers, I think, are just as confused as the society is right now. But, but I think it's important to understand this history. OK, so for the policymaker on this panel, <laughs> um, but I do, ha I do have to agree that um, you know the the um, there's a, a a large and unimaginable uh, unimaginable uh, burden mm -hmm. on us to make sure that we get it right, mm -hmm. that we focus on 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 wealth. I find now I'm a newly elected state assembly member. I've been there since November, and I find now I haven't been there long, but I find that. 
in certain circles, there are certain black issues, right, or certain minority issues. You know, because I'm a person of color, they expect me to sit on the mm -hmm. black committees, <laughs> right? Um, I happen to sit on, I like to be where the money is, right? Good. And I'm not afraid to talk money. I'm not afraid to talk wealth. We have to, people of color have to look at wealth honestly, and we have to change normal. There has to be a new normal. It has to be normal for us, the majority of us, to be owners. That has to be normal. It's okay for us to fight for jobs, but we should fight to own the jobs. We should fight to own the contract. We should fight to be owners of businesses and of home ownership. There's a big push for affordable housing in New York. I get it. But I'd like to push more of us to be homeowners. I'm in a community of homeowners, and sometimes people lose homes with no mortgage. When that happens, we lose millions of dollars of black wealth. So how do we look at wealth honestly? How do we make investment normal? How do we purchase? How do we understand that the road to building wealth is hard? There's no quick fix. There's no boom, you're gonna you know, hit fast. So how do we get the, 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 the community to, to naturally invest? Just the other day, actually last night, so I'm on the banking committee, and we're folk, you know, and do I, am I talking too much? No, please. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm on the banking committee. We spent two months arguing about check cashing places. Um, and and it was, we were focusing about check cashing places in certain neighborhoods, whether or not to give them, uh, to raise the cap on whether or not they should cash uh, certain levels of checks from 15,000 to 30,000 or what have you. We were arguing about this back and forth and the downstate, the New York people were arguing with the upstate people or what have you. And we on New York State and the banking committees were not talking about cryptocurrencies. We weren't talking about digital currencies. We weren't talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum and Litecoin. So finally, we st you know, that's on the table, part of that, you know, is start starting now. But, I, but I, I wondered, I was in my office last night in the hood, and I said, you know what, let me put on in my Google Maps and put on, where could I buy Bitcoin? And I, and I did a Google Maps search, and five places came up within two miles. Didn't believe it. I, I, so seven o'clock at night, I walked to the closest bodega, which was a half a block away from me. And I go to the bodega, lo and behold, buy Bitcoin here. <laughs> I go up, I saw three ATMs, one regular ATM, a lotto machine, and a Bitcoin. Within two, within two minutes, people were standing online buying Bitcoin in the hood. Things are changing fast, right? We don't even understand it in the New York State Assembly. Things are changing fast. Is there, there are developing nations using crypto, now I'm not sponsoring it or not sponsoring or what have you, I'm just telling you what's happening. There are developing nations using cryptocurrencies because of uh, the ease of transactions, cost or what have you. 
should certain communities look at these kinds of investments or these types of uses? We have to look at where the ball is going, y'all. We have to make sure that we invest in, in ourselves. Blunder, do you have any comments on policy? Um, so what are the um, opportunity costs of failed solutions, um, and what haven't we done enough of? I mean, this, the, the book is about failed solutions. And mm -hmm. I think the, 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 the theory has been that economic strength can precede political power. And uh, I, I want to subvert that argument, that you need your, your hand on political levers in order to gain that economic strength. And I think this is, this is the, the myth, I think, of, uh, you know, the, you know, we're going to pull our resources together, you know, you, poor segregated community, segregated by nature of policy, and that community is going to pull its resources together and somehow lift itself out of poverty that was imposed on them, that was, by the way, of, of benefit to everyone else. That just doesn't work. And so the failed policy, I think, has had a lot of negative um, you know, consequences. One of the negative consequences is that other avenues have been sort of subverted, right? So this has been a decoy over and over again to say, when, when the community is saying, okay, we need capital, we need capital. And then what's what comes back is we need, uh, you can have deposits. And she can talk about the difference between capital and deposits, but they're fundamentally different. But I think policy-wise, maybe it doesn't seem all that different. Um, you know, uh, when they say we want power, we want control of the community, oh, you can have banks. And Banks can do things, but they can't have power and control over a community's resources. And so this is, you know, and this, the Freedmen's Bank, it's like, oh, well, we want land. We want the, the land that we've been working for centuries that is our right. Um, you know what, n n no on the land, but here's a savings account. So, so, I, so I think really um, it's been a, a bunch of, and I call them like policy decoys. You know, here, you know, instead of this thing that you want that is capital and control, you will get this other thing that is capitalism, but it's not actually capitalism. Um, because capitalism, uh, you need to have, you know, Adam Smith's capitalism is that there are no prejudices, that no, there are no barriers to entry. And so we've never had capitalism as it relates to people of color. Uh, it's never been capitalism, so that's a lie. Um, it's been sort of socialism on, you know, the post-New Deal era for whites. Um, who were able to get those mortgages and student loans, and, and blacks have had capitalism. This is where payday lending and check cashing comes from. They're the only, poor people are the only people who pay um, capital market prices, or market prices for credit. The rest of us don't pay market prices for credit. The rest of us pay government subsidized prices for our mortgage and our student loans. Um, and it's the payday lenders and the check cashers that that's the market price, but only poor people pay it. And it's a huge cost. And one of the things about the wealth gap is fully a third of black families have zero or negative wealth. Okay? So these families rely on payday loans. And what that means is not just that it's a suck of wealth, but it's also, I mean, it's a psychological um, you know, blow. It is, I mean, how stressful to be under that strain of debt, and it's, it's a revolving debt. That doesn't go away. Um, and so, so this is something that is, we don't consider. I mean, I don't think most of us know what it is like to be poor and generationally poor. So most of us have buffers that we can go to. If I'm out $5,000 for a medical bill, there's somebody I can call, somebody in my network. And there's a lot of Americans who have nobody to call. So they go to the payday lender. And I don't think, unless you've lived that, I don't think you can understand what that's like. 
And if I can interject on the history of the Carver Bank. So before Carver was able to get a charter, New York State, I mean, look at, I mean, great migration, right? A ton of, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, and then you've got Chicago. Chicago has its black banks, and they're, they're fascinating, interesting. Harlem doesn't have any banks during that, black-owned banks during that time. Why? Because the New York State Charter won't allow black bankers to, to charter. Um, and it's because Chase Manhattan has branches in Harlem. They have a monopoly on the Harlem deposits. And what are they doing? They're taking the deposits from Harlem, and they're lending them downtown. So they're sucking the capital out. And so this is what happens when you have inequality and lack of political power, you're going to keep getting taken advantage of. And, and there's no way to change that with your own banks. And that's, and, oh, I'm sorry. I just mainly want to echo what you both are, are saying. I almost think that the, um, the policy fixes here are easier than, I mean, building the political power and the political will to make this happen. Because as Marissa has, has written, you know, we, we know how to help people build wealth. We did it for white people um, after the, the Great Depression. Um, so, you know, we, we know how to do this, I think. Um, but again, how can we build the political will and how can we build the political power to make that happen? And, and the black population lost 53% of its wealth during the um, financial crisis. Um, why? Because here you have a, a population that was deprived of, of good mortgage credit, and when the subprime lenders went looking for populations, that's where they went. And so all of that subprime credit blew up, and black communities lost way more wealth than anyone else. And something that we're not quite, we haven't quite resolved yet. I think we're not quite talking about that as much as we should be. Um, lack of financial resources and wealth is one form of inequality born from lack of political power. Um, where else does lack of political power show up in terms of uh, communities and how are they associated with intersecting sort of these financial um, disempowerment? <coughs> Easy questions, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, New York is an interesting space because, uh, generally speaking, um, in the in the black community, uh, which and this is starting to change, but politically, you know, usually, you know, old much older generation is in uh, runs the neighborhoods. So, um, and that that is a um, that is a function of a lot of different things, right? You know, power doesn't just give up power. So if you look at uh, if you look at the civil rights era, um, in in my neighborhood, the first uh, African American um, city councilman got in in 1974, um, and um, and and since then, many of the folks in in my area have come from uh, union work uh, workers or activists uh, or, or, or what have you. But you guys generally don't run for office. You guys generally don't move back into the neighborhood after you get your beautiful degree. So, I, so my area is an area that uh, is a beautiful area, but it's aging, right? We have the, the grandparents in the homes or what have you, so the, the kids or the grandkids don't come back for a number of different reasons. They can't afford to buy in the neighborhood, and it's a single family, you know, single family, older, quiet area, so you know, you'd rather live in the hot spot. Right, not in our area. So that has an effect on <clears throat> on black and minority politics. So 
the you know we are generally speaking that uh, not everybody but you know the people in those positions that wouldn't be as uh, as politically as I'm sorry as wealth progressive mm. right they would see things relatively differently so it's important that that different uh, folks like you know younger people run for office and 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 uh, you know people like you guys run for office so so we could see things differently for example um, one of the things that you know what I'm focused on is how do we how do we make you know how do we get the younger folks and next generation to be able to purchase these homes in and I'm going to go back to that the purchase these homes in, in these in these just regular working class neighborhoods that you know that where these homes are you know half a million dollars so we highlighted some people in their 20s and 30s that actually did it and we asked what did they do we highlight them and we find out that one of the people was my little brother <laughs> found out that look he didn't buy a new car when he got his job he didn't he he didn't go out to eat for lunch right you go out to lunch and that's you know at least 10, 15 bucks a day. He, you know, he went grocery shopping on Sunday and packed his lunch all, you know, for all week. He saved for a year and a half for the down payment. He made sure his credit was tight. He purchased a house and he purchased one family house, lives in the one room in the basement and rents upstairs. He's not supposed to do that, but he does. <laughs> oh, but he owns a house. So how do we, you know, how do we um, show that as being cool, that as the normal, not, you know, driving the, not getting the payment on the car. Remember, you get a payment on a new car, it's, you know, four or 500 bucks, then you gotta pay insurance on it, right? That's another 200 bucks, so that's $600 a month. Six, and it's a depreciating <laughs> asset. So, so how do we, you know, how do we keep highlighting that and showing that? Um, and, and that's something that, that we have to be responsible in showing. Another thing we have to be responsible doing too is with this, with, with, with where this economy is going with, with, with respect to technology, things are changing, right? So, um, and I was just talking about this with someone else uh, here earlier. I went to Home Depot and in the past, you know, I go to Home Depot, well I can't fix anything, but you know, sometimes I go there to buy stuff and you know, I messed stuff up in the house, but um, three years ago, 20 cashiers and one small self-serve counter. Now, three cashiers, almost, you know, six, seven self-serve counters. I went to Applebee's and there's a kiosk on the table. I was, I was in another country and I went to McDonald's and you don't speak to anybody. Everything's on a kiosk until they pass you the food. So this, some people were talking about in Harlem there's a new steak, shake and steak, steak and shake, shake and steak, where there's no servers, it's all, uh, all kiosk. So where's this, okay, so that's happening to those kinds of service jobs. But at the same time, Amazon is coming to New York, right? 2,000 new jobs, 6,000 across the state, right? Um, is that 2,000? I don't know. Those are, I think those are the numbers. But anyway, that's coming to New York. So retail is changing. Now, there may be opportunities for folks with business and retail or what have you. Are we looking at the different opportunities? 
are we looking at these kinds of things? There are people that are doing well selling arbitrage on eBay and Amazon. If you have a job, are you setting up a side business? Nowadays, my mom worked at the same job for 40 years and she retired from, and she has a good pension um, for the same job that she worked at for 40 years. That story is not happening today. So, so are we prepared for that? I want to I just clear up. So there's, there's a couple myths, I think, that are important to dispel. What is it, the black community saves more money per income than the white community? Uh, it's not astronomical, but it's 11% to 10%. So, um, and uh, a lot of these other benefits, like education and jobs, stem from wealth. So if you, are, if you come from a family that owns a home, you're more likely to be able to go to college, to go to a good school in the first place, and to get a good income, because it's all that social capital. But it derives from wealth. So if your grandpa had a house, you know, your dad's more likely to have a house, you know, uh, we'll include moms later, you know, moms later, and then, and then you're more likely to go to school and get that income. And so, so I, yes, I mean, and, and the other myth is that poor people are poor because they've made bad financial decision. That, that is a complete lie. Um, it, you know, it, it is, and, and the it's been studied. Uh, you go out, outside of a grocery store, they've, you know, so uh, behavioral economics have, uh, economists have asked people, with a grocery cart, um, cart, someone who's very poor, someone who is um, very middle class, how much did each item cost and what was your total bill? Someone like me would have, yeah, I have a buffer, I don't need to know. I don't need to know how much the toothpaste costs or what my total bill was, I have no idea. But if you're poor, you know exactly how much every item costs and how much your bill was total. Payday loans, they know exactly how much these loan charges are. Car payments, they're not spending frivolously. They, they are making rational decisions, but without that buffer of wealth, there aren't options. Or the decision-making calculus flips, right? So I need to get the payday loan so I don't get evicted because ev eviction has much more down-the-road consequences than even that 200% interest. So, so I, I like to deal with systems as opposed to individual choices because you can literally skip lunch and latte and avocado toast always but it, because savings savings don't create wealth it's credit and it's leverage and so back to this idea of politics I mean uh, it's the golden rule right he who has the gold makes the rules right so uh, but what Scott Stringer says was was one thing that that I think that's happening that he alluded to, which is, is a very new phenomenon, is this idea of, of the capital of these um, labor funds, these pension funds, are flexing their muscle. That's a huge development. I mean, in the world of capitalism and investments, the only way to sway political bodies and, and corporations is if you're an, an investor. And so these institutions, these, and it's CalPERS in California and the New York State Fund, they're the two that are doing it most. So those are the kind of things that should be encouraged, but also just actually getting your hands into those political levers. But you need, you need capital. And did you want to add anything as a government official? No. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but but I'd, I mean, I'd like you to talk about the predatory state idea, because these fines and, I mean, sh yes, this is really important. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and again, I just, it's so great we're having this conversation on a Friday night. Um, <laughs> so many people showed up to, to talk about this. This is the pre-party. Right. Right, 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 exactly. Um, you know, so there's, there's so many facets to this challenge and the solution. One thing we have started working on um, in San Francisco and in California 
I direct something called the Financial Justice Project. And what we're doing is trying to take a hard look at <laughs> tickets, um, uh, fines, fees, financial penalties that have really been spreading um, throughout government, throughout courts, and um, stripping resources and wealth from people who can't afford to lose them. Um, I know that I started thinking about this uh, many years ago when um, I got a ticket near my house. I deserved the ticket. I did not come to a complete stop <laughs> at a stop sign. And I knew that um, uh, it was a few hundred dollars because a lot of my neighbors had gotten this ticket. And uh, I had just been um, uh, reading this study you know, that showed that if Americans had to come up with $500 in an emergency, that 60% of them simply couldn't do it. They just don't have the resources. And so I remember I was looking at that ticket and thinking, I know there are so many people who cannot pay this, and what happens when people can't pay it? And so then many years later, Ferguson happens. And we all know what happened there when Michael Brown, young, unarmed African-American man, was tragically shot and killed by the police. And in the aftermath of that, um, the United States Department of Justice put out something called the Ferguson Report. And one thing they saw was this form of um, cash registered justice, that people were getting tickets for a few hundred dollars for minor offenses, um, driving with a broken taillight, your grass is too high in the yard. The tickets were a few hundred dollars. Um, and then, you know, people simply couldn't pay them. Um, and this spiral of despair would set in motion, like the ticket would grow and then um, your credit could be impacted. You could lose your driver's license, which could lead you to lose your job. You could even be jailed for non-payment. And in Ferguson, they found that in a city of about 26,000 people, there were 30,000 citations that had been given out um, in, in this one year and that it was the city's second largest source of revenue. So we were looking at this in California thinking, please tell me that this isn't happening in California and that um, this isn't showing up um, in our state. And unfortunately, what we saw was that 4 million California adults, and that's about 17% of our adult population, had had their driver's license suspended because they couldn't pay um, traffic tickets. Uh, we started hearing from um, parents around the state if their son or daughter was locked up in juvenile hall um, that they'd get a bill for um, every night that they were there. And fines and fees have been on the increase in 48 states um, since 2010. So now in the majority of states, a lot of things that are constitutionally required and used to be free, you now have to pay for. You pay to get a public defender. You pay if you want a jury. Um, if you are sent to jail or prison, you are charged for room and board. You rent your ankle monitor. You pay for your alcohol and drug yeah. tests. Yeah. And in 30 states, if you don't make these payments, your voting rights are restricted. Mm -hmm. And in most states, you can be jailed for non-payment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as Mercer was saying, we talk about predatory lending. But government can be predatory as well. And so we're really working to turn this around in um, San Francisco and California. This is a lose-lose for government and for people 
It is also very racialized. If you look at who gets their driver's license suspended, um, these fines and fees in the criminal justice system, we know how African-Americans are overrepresented in our, um, in our criminal justice system. And uh, you know, we're advancing a lot of solutions um, in California. Our court was the first to stop suspending driver's licenses for inability to pay. Other courts followed suit, and Governor Jerry Brown just eliminated this practice statewide. So we're the first state to do so. There's also a bill sitting on the governor's desk to get rid of these um, fees that parents pay if their child is locked up in juvenile hall. And the revenue that comes in from these things is, is very small. You know, people can't pay them. It's a bad source of revenue for government, and it really hurts families. So they're high pain, low gain. Exactly. Um, yeah. I could keep, yeah. yeah. Right. There, is, there, there, there is a debtor's pr prison phenomenon. There's also uh, men who c are released from prison who are fathers are presented with an $80,000 child support bill upon release, right? right? That's happening in New York. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And that, that child support, right, is actually um, owed to the government. Right. Right. Um, right. right. So, uh, uh, you know, so when people make child support payments, they're not going to their children. Yeah. So, so when, sorry, when Walter Scott was shot by the South Carolina cop, um, uh, the reason why he was running, well, we talk about the weapon and how the cop lied, but the reason he was running is because he was scared of the child support debt. So all these things run together. And that, and that person who owes child support is not going to open up an account in a bank because he does not want any exactly. checks he makes to be seized. Yeah. Uh, actually, they're also not so going to want to be employed in this last They're also not going to want to be employed in the, um, in the formal job formal. sector. Yeah. So, you know, when, when I started this work, you know, I just want to be honest, like I didn't understand how this worked. And so people were coming to me and saying, can you, you guys do something about child support debt? Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, what? You know, like mm -hmm. money from kids? And it's like, oh no, you know, mm -hmm. again, these payments go to the government. So I heard from a lot of community organizations that place young men into construction jobs. <coughs> and what they were finding was that um, they would get a job, um, placed into a job, and then their first paycheck, you know, more than half of it would be garnished, mm -hmm. and it wouldn't go to, you know, their kids or their, their family. It would, again, go to Sacramento to kind of reimburse um, uh, TANF um, uh, welfare. And, uh, you know, sooner, of, you know, this happens for a few paychecks, and again, talk about making a rational decision. Yeah. Um, you're like, wait a minute, I'm, uh, I'm not getting paid, <laughs> um, and it's not going to support my family, so I'm gonna work off the books, I'm not gonna have a bank account, you know, et cetera. So we're also trying to um, make sure that when people make child support payments, they go to their families. And they child. go to their kids yeah. and not <laughs> the, the support of the child. So actually, and you, you brought up some really great points about what's happening in San Francisco. And I actually want to um, stay there and ask both Clyde and Blundell about how, with respect to being from Queens and then obviously uh, Carver being in Harlem and other New York City neighborhoods, um, how do you disrupt uh, practices that sustain um, inequitable financial outcomes from the Queens perspective and then Harlem and other New York City neighborhoods? Uh, well, for Queens and for the state, uh, for example, uh, New York State procures, uh, and as, as, uh, as the uh, Comptroller state, uh, stated, 
we spend billions and billions of dollars on, on goods and services. In my neighborhood in Queens, we're going to, uh, the governor just recently announced that we're going to redevelop JFK Airport. It's a $10 billion plan. That happened, uh, uh, LaGuardia was, was in the process of being redeveloped, uh, and the LaGuardia project was about a $4 billion project, and minority and women-owned businesses were supposed to get 30% of those contracts. That project started five years ago, and we are at less than, we're not even in double digits. Not even in the double digits for a lot of different reasons. But as we talk about policies, it's very important for us to make sure that when we talk about wealth building, right, that, that the government makes sure that we spread the wealth through the minority communities, through women-owned businesses. So we're very focused on making sure that local, small, and minority businesses get a piece of the pie with respect to to this kind of redevelopment that's happening in our neighborhoods, right? In our, in, in our neighborhoods. Another thing that we're doing too is that, again, JFK is in my district. I mean, it's in my, it's in my area in Southeast Queens. If you look at the uh, vendors in the airport, you know, how many local restaurants are there? How many local businesses are there? Very important for us to make sure that we focus on, on those kinds of things. Another issue is that many of us work at the airport um, and, and many of us are the low-level service workers at the airport, the, the, the maintenance workers, the ticket handlers, the baggage handlers, or what have you. We found out that most of them, are not, they do not work for the airlines or they don't work for Port Authority. They work for a private contractor. We too often view ourselves as the employees. Why aren't we owning those businesses? Why aren't we owning those agencies? And why aren't we owning those jobs? So it's a shift in mindset. As policy, or as, as, as policy makers or what have you, we have to see and, 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 and identify how do minority uh, uh, you know, uh, companies and minorities and women-owned companies get these kinds of contracts. Not just a job, you're not, you know, we're not just employees and just fighting for jobs. How do we make sure that we get these contracts? And these are contracts are, can change and affect generational wealth. Not a paycheck, but generational wealth. So these are things that we have, that we are, we're looking at, that we're, that we're fighting for. Um, and these, and the reason why it's possible is because we have to have the economic power, but we have to have the, the, the political power to be, and the vision to be able to, do, to fight for this and to, and to do it. So that's, that's what we're working on. Let's build airports. Getting back to getting the contracts, so for us, it's so as we know, it's not just about the minority business getting a, the contracts, it's sustaining the biz their business and you need capital to sustain your business. That is the engine that drives your business. So giving them loans. And what Carver does, we, par we partner with the MTA, we partner with the School Construction Authority, and we have a program where we provide 
financing to MWBEs, Minority and Women-Owned Business Enterprises, and we give them small loans to mobilize because it's not enough to just get a contract because you can get a contract and not be able to fulfill your contract because you can't hire enough people. You cannot order materials. So it's not about getting the contract. Get the contract, but you need the money, the capital, to sustain the business, to hire subs, to, to order your materials, to do all the things that you need. So there's a lot that goes into business and understanding business and how to run your business better. Right? Just because I know how to cook chicken doesn't mean I know how to run a restaurant. Right? So you have to understand how to run a business. And that's where banks like Carver come into play and where, why we're important because I'm not just going to write you a blank check. I'm going to sit with you and try to figure out how your business works and how it's sustainable and more importantly, how you can pay me back when I do write you your check. <laughs> um, so those are the critical things that I think discussions that need to happen to be disruptive. You know, Carver has come up with products and services to assist our community. We came up with um, a product to help unbanked and underbanked. Because what we know is there is an inherent distrust in certain communi our communities of banking institutions mm -hmm. for a lot of the reasons we talked about here today. So what do you do? So I bring you into the tent of a, of a bank and allow you to cash a check, right? Just come in and cash a check. You don't have a bank account because most people don't, most banks don't cash checks unless you have an account. Come in and cash a check and you can pay just like you do the check cash. Right? Um, come in and pay your bills just like you do the check cashes. Come in and do those things. Because eventually, hopefully, as you're coming in and doing those things, and we're charging a little less, as you're coming in and doing those things, we can start to have a conversation with you so you don't have to pay to do the things that we do on a regular basis. Um, so those are the types of things and the types of ways that we are trying to embrace our community and bring them in under the tent um, where they've been excluded for such a long time. This conversation is going really, really well. I have a few more questions. However, uh, I want to hear from you all. And um, so we're going to open the uh, floor for the audience to ask questions to our uh, esteemed panelists. Thanks for your time, everybody. Um, so I have a question about the role of gentrification um, and its kind of intersection with what we're talking about and, and wealth and home ownership. And obviously, we know that gentrification doesn't just buy up land and push people out, that people who are moving into neighborhoods that they are gentrifying, I, I'm a gentrifier, <laughs> I just moved uptown um, from out of state and because it's, it's affordable. Um, and I have my own kind of feelings about my, you know, being complicit in the system that's so problematic. But what I notice is that other people who are moving into the community are not participating in the community. So they're not shopping at the bodega or at Food Town. They're ordering Peapod to drop off their groceries because they don't really want to talk to the people in there and support the community, right? So to me, it's even a, you know, home ownership is one thing, but now businesses are also being shut down and going out because they don't, they don't want to, to participate in those businesses for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about the role of gentrification. Um, I mean, on the wealth angle, uh, what, what happens with gentrification, you would think that the communities that formerly occupied the area would able to be able to capture that wealth, but what you see is a transition from renters to homeowners, um, and the renters just are displaced, and there's this resegregation effect. I mean, you saw it in Ferguson, Missouri, right? As St. Louis got gentrified, um, St. Louis, 
resegregated to another area, right? Ferguson becomes the place where the renters um, go. And, and as far as the communities, absolutely. I mean, that community is, uh, you know, it, 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 there's a Whole Foods now in Harlem. I mean, you, she could talk right about- Right across the street. Right, you know, and I don't know if that's good or bad, but you know, Carver's been there for- uh, 1940s. Not, you know, before pre-gentrification and, and I don't know, you could talk about car. I mean, I think you embody what's happening with gentrification. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, we don't have a lot of time. Um, so, so I'll, I'll just say this. For, it, it's interesting. Uh, Carver, Carver has nine branches. Um, for, for minority banks, um, we are part of a, we are also known as um, CDFI, as a Certified Development Financial Institution. It means that the federal government has, an, has a department that recognizes what we do, and we provide financial services and products to people in low and moderate income neighborhoods, right? The issue, and I think is very, very interesting, since I started at Carver, which is nine, 10 years ago, a number of our branches were located in LMI, low, moderate income neighborhoods, now none of our branches are. We didn't move. <laughs> so we're in Harlem, we're in Bed-Stuy, we're in Crown Heights, <laughs> we're in St. Albans. We did not go anywhere. None of our branches now are located in LMI neighborhoods. When you are located in LMI neighborhoods, you get certain things. Um, we are no longer located in LMI neighborhoods through no fault of our own. <laughs> yeah. So let's just say that. Well, thank you all for spending your Friday evening with us, and we could have many, many Friday evenings like this because the issues you're tackling, I mean, it takes so much time, but it's good that New America is doing this as usual. They do such a wonderful job. I got to praise them because I always bring my son who's trying to tell me don't embarrass him by mentioning him that he's here. You just did. <laughs> he, he's 14, and I could say he's, he's gotten an education through some of the stuff New America does and some of the stuff that happens all throughout New York, and I try to get so many of my friends so take their kids out you know to all of this because this is the one wonderful thing about new york that we could meet and listen to so many great ideas last week we went to see muhammad yunus um you know the nobel peace prize when i noticed he got it for nobel peace prize even though he started the grameen bank and micro lending etc and realizing of course that he has 20 locations of the Grameen Bank started in Bangladesh in the United States, many cities all around. It would be wonderful to see that with so many other banks like Carver, etc. And then of course his plan is in the next uh, five to 10 years to expand to 40 locations. Micro lending that does not require as much of the stringent contracts and credit worthiness and so forth that lends money to something like 97% of women as, as far as a clientele, because they understand, unlike we men, that women tend to be more responsible and push the family forward. I'll admit that, <laughs> for the men who can't. Um, <laughs> so my question, I'm sorry. So my question is, as far as structurally and you know, tackling so many of his um, issues, are there places that you know, Carver or any of the number of banks could do some of the things that you know a Grameen is able to do in the United States coming from outside of it. Not to put you on the spot, that could go across the board, including to the policy guy. Um, so speaking, speaking for Carver, because we are a regulated institution, our hands are tied to a certain degree. Like yes, 
banks like Carver will be a little bit more entrepreneurial and we will push the envelope a little bit. But when we do, we tend to get slapped on the wrist very hard um, by our regulators because at the end of the day, um, their job is to uh, ensure our institutions are safe and sound and it's supposed to regulate risk. Despite the fact that I know that if you've been paying into a SUSU for years, and I can count count on that. And because what you know about I, the susu? Because my because my family's from Jamaica. <laughs> um, and because I know that, that unfortunately doesn't translate into regulatory policy that would allow me to then make a loan to you based on that. Let me contextualize Mohammed. First of all, I, I want to say that your son is very lucky. Yeah, I hope he knows that. Uh, okay, <laughs> not yet. He, he will, will one he day. Will. Um, so uh, Mohammed Yunus, before he launches Grameen Bank, gets his inspiration from Shore Bank in Chicago, which is a black bank, um, not black owned, but black bank, and that's where the CDFI. Um, legislation stems from that. So Mohammed Yunus is very much a product of this microcredit thing that develops here. However, um, in in the states, and I've studied this in, in both books, microcredit has not been a solution to macro inequality. Right, yes, you know. Um, and, and, and I think as far as microcredit abroad, it's a mixed record um, at, at, at best. So I'm, I'm a, I, I think in some places it is very good. In some places, it has been a, dis a disaster. Uh, in New York State, we, uh, our Economic Development Corporation, uh, for two years now, has been lending, um, uh, you know, lending funds uh, and been uh, doing a, a, a better job. They have a better, long way to go because we've uh, we looked at uh, how much they lend, but uh, it's, it's surprising that they're even in the, in that space. So now that you know the next uh, legislative cycle, we're going to try to push and force to make sure that um, they lend more and better. But I was surprised that they even do it now. So now I have, we have something to work with to get that to, uh, to happen more on, this, on the state level. Um, I'm glad the SUSU came up. Um, and uh, I, I just want to mention, because I, I think <laughs> <laughs> there's, in San Francisco, uh, in the mission, there's a guy named Jose Quinones, who um, also had been looking, and these things exist like in every, these peer lending circles, and in most communities, in the Latino community, they're often called tandas. And what he did, which I think was super interesting, is um, he thought about, you know, how can you meet people where they are? And then people in the Tondas um, uh, opened up bank accounts, and then they were able to, uh, and I was researching this at the time, their credit scores went from like non-existent or zero credit um, way up. And um, so I think there's a big lesson there to like look at like how are people already like saving and building wealth naturally kind of in their communities and what does that mean for financial institutions because a lot of our financial instruments and um Pondell knows so much more about this um, than i do but they're like uh, uh, available to individuals and maybe i don't know if there were more cooperative ways that were more commercially accessible for people to, you know, you talk about the, was it your little brother who bought a house? Yeah, but maybe more people could, um, if our financial instruments reflected kind of what is working in communities and there's these kind of co-op, built on these kind of cooperative methods, but yeah, I just wanted to share that. 
And, and sometimes it doesn't have to be all banks. There are alternative financial institutions that do help and provide these, this type of financing. So banks aren't only the answer. Yes, I wanted to, uh, to ask the panel to talk to uh, another uh, disadvantage in the uh, African-American community, minority community, which is the timidity or ineffectiveness of our elected officials. All of the items you're talking about, whether it's the gentrification, payday loans, getting out of prison, all of these are legislated. And if our representatives didn't vote for things that negatively impact the community, they would not be happening. You know, in New York City, we have a, a non-white majority in the city council. So then how are we getting all of this gentrification? In Albany, we have a significant uh, presence in the assembly, if not the Senate, and this is a major obstacle to our advancement that our representatives are so busy trying to pretend to be respectable. Uh, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to be soft on crime, so therefore it's okay for the kid, a 14-year-old, to be charged as an adult because I'm a black representative. I can't pretend I'm soft on crime. So uh, we started out that the politics, the government facilitated the creation of a white middle class. And if our representatives didn't vote for things that are adverse to our interests, they wouldn't be happening. Hello. Hello. Yeah. So uh, I'm so happy that you guys are up here. So I say amen to that. Amen. So let me just uh, make something clear here. I started my career eons ago as a loan counselor for Acorn Housing Corp. And we took SUSU as credit history. So y'all, you know, okay? And it can be done. Number two, just because you're a black bank don't mean you're owned by black people. That's the other problem. So I have a question I'm trying to solve. There's um, a thing called depository banks. It's an exclusive club of some of the major banks. And this club, if you belong to this club, you can do business with the city and the state. Currently, this club earns, there's only like a dirty dozen of them, earns over a billion dollars a year in fees to handle our money. So, number one, Carver ain't up in that club. Many other community banks are not in that club. Some of the folks in the club are the very same perpetrators who almost brought the economy of this country down, yet they are benefiting. So how can we force um, the governor <laughs> and the mayor of this city and the governor of this state to say to the depository banks, 
unless you lend more money and provide more capital, we're going to stop doing business with you. How can we make that happen as a practical solution to getting capital into the hands of minority and women businesses? All right, so I guess I'll address the, okay. <laughs> um, so uh, Bertha, great question. Um, and one of the things, um, you know, as a, as a legislator and as a policymaker, you know, we, uh, we're looking to, you know, how do we spread not only those contracts, but the banks? Let's look into that. You know, let's look into that. Let's make sure that um, uh, I, I haven't looked into that, um, uh, uh, um, uh, looked into that issue or what have you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, let's, 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 let's do that. Um, because keep in mind, remember, we have... We have, you know, we're spending, as she says, you know, we're, 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 you know, we're spending billions of dollars with banking, with lending, with loaning. Um, so let's, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the, you know, let, this is, uh, this is the environment where we can, and we have some power and leverage to be able to to make certain things happen. It's not, it may not be easy, but let's work on it. I, so, just very quickly, I, I do sit on the mayor's um, community investment advisory board. To your point. And one of the things that we were gathered to do was to go out to the communities and listen to people talk about how bad um, the depository banks have treated them and not provided services or loans or mortgages. Um, so we did that, and um, we got some, you know, got some good feedback and, and some data. Um, and after that, and we issued a report. <laughs> so we, we issued a report. Um, after that, I don't know what, what happened. <laughs> I don't know what happened. So at the end of the day, if there's not political will or might there to do something different, I mean, gathering people together to go to every borough to listen to, to war stories is great, and we're getting a report, but this is, I, mean, this I don't is, know what else to you, you, yeah. you do with that. What do you do with that? Can you issue the report publicly? Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's out there. Oh, okay. no, it's public. It's out there, but... So, um, so I wrote another book called How the Other Half Banks that addresses this point where we have, you know, five banks now that own 80% of the nation's assets, and when they go down, we come and we bail them out. So Carver, Shore Bank, uh, a lot of black banks got sold off during the financial crisis, and guess who comes and buys them? It's the Goldman Sachs and the American Express who were funded with taxpayer bailouts, and so we. What, you know, what I try to illuminate in the first book is this idea that banks aren't what you, we think they are. They're not private institutions. They're very much, they work hand in hand with government and policymakers. So to treat banks like they're these market institutions, it's just not, that's a myth. And we saw that in 2008. We cannot let these banks fail, especially the big ones and the important ones. We'll let little banks fail at any day. Um, so, so, so I think there's, there, there does have to be this conversation. I mean, Louis Brandeis says after the Great Depression, the banks are essentially public utilities why? Because they're benefiting with the use of other people's money. Um, so, so we have to just generally, and this is not a black-white issue, but it's a bank issue, uh, talk about banks differently. I don't think we quite understand what banks are in this country. Hi. One of the questions I had going back to what you said, Clyde, about how your brother brought the house and everything, one of the problems with New York is the fact that you can't rent under a certain amount of period of time. And I grew up in Southeast Queens, so I understand like a lot of people rented out 
space. So, and I live here in Washington Heights in Manhattan, and I, I rent out space too. And I'm like, can New York City change those laws so we could be able to afford to, to live here? Because we have either multiple tenants or multiple roommates. And no one's addressing that because the hotel lobby is so big. You know, but so many people come here for short-term contracts because contract labor is so big. You know, you only need a house for a little bit or you only need a room for a little bit. Is there anything that people could do about that? And the other thing is, can you start a contract laborers bill of rights? Because this is disproportionating people of color as well as college educated. They don't have rights because they're not an employee. No one cares about you, whether you're an office temp or you're cleaning the floors. You don't get the same standards. No one offers you the direct deposit like they do if you're an employee, the student loans, the tuition reimbursement. So is someone able to come in there and help us? You know, Because not everybody could drive Uber, but you know what? They could rent out a room on Airbnb or Craigslist or to a college student. You know? So that's why I want to ask if those two things could come about. Thank you. So New York City is very is a it's a very complicated uh, out here. I you know I find that um, um, you know as you said that you know we have certain laws in place with respect to subleasing and 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 renting out different rooms or what have you. Um, and um, uh, there's a battle between uh, different areas and Airbnb. Um, and people have mixed feelings about uh, you know, about Airbnb in our neighborhoods. Um, 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 but in in Southeast Queens in particular. Many folks rent out their basements, um, and uh, so most of the basements that are rented are technically illegal uh, to rent out because they have, in order to have a legal basement, you're supposed to have two, two exits, two, two, uh, two, two, uh, yeah, two areas of egress. Most of them have one, um, and uh, and many folks, um, you know, have rented in order to supplement their income or in order to be able to pay for a, a mortgage. Um, uh, what's interesting is with when the new uh, administration came in the city, we were looking into changing the laws to allow um, to allow or to to change uh, the legality of basements. And there's been, uh, you know, there's still conversation of, uh, about that because we realize that you know these modest homes are worth half a million dollars, right? Uh, a mortgage on these these homes are you know three four thousand dollars a month. Very difficult for working class people to be able to pay, you know, pay for the you know to pay the mortgage on these homes. So what what's going to happen is what's the what's the neighborhood going to look like five ten years? Who's going to be able to move in uh, to these homes and and afford it? So we're still wrestling that. We're still wrestling whether or not, you know, we're still wrestling to see, what, you know, the penetration of Airbnb in our neighborhoods. Are we, is it, is it messing up our neighborhoods? Are we taking advantage of it? Are we, we're still wrestling with this stuff. I think, you know, what it looks like in New York, um, my perspective is that we're, we're trying to figure it out, but we're in a transition phase and things are changing fast. So I, you know, I have to be. We have to be smart enough to be able to to look at what's going on and see where we're going, and to have smart policy and not just have knee-jerk reactions and say yes, no, or what have you. Um, and we also have to make sure that 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 people that live in the neighborhood, people of color, take advantage of certain opportunities um, um, uh, with 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 this new economy. 
So um, we need to wrap up, so we're going to take two questions. Um, we would just ask, uh, really get to the question and be super quick. is uh, going to be in the back. She'll be signing books, and I'm sure that um, our speakers and our panelists will be available to answer some questions. So, Thank you. Thank you for tonight. It's been quite informative. Real quick, I work in quality assurance before I retired. We always look for the root cause so you can come up with the right solution. What I haven't heard today is looking at the root cause. How do you communicate? How do you educate blacks to know how to utilize their funds? Real quick, I got my mother and my aunt to get an IRA in the 70s. They saved a little bit of money. They were paying money for rent, so they were always paying taxes. I got them to take some of the money from the IRA with Merrill Lynch, and they purchased a mortgage, and they had their own condominium. They stopped paying taxes. They started getting refund. There are different devices, different solutions that exist that the typical black American does not know how to use. How can you educate them? A better educated consumer will be able to develop a means of having black wealth. Um, so, uh, speaking, so, so great. Um, speaking of root causes, I would say, you know, read the book. And if I, I, I look, I no, no, no. But, but I, I'm not actually just talking. I'm not. My, my. The point of the book is not to advise blacks on how to build wealth. That's not my point. My point is to talk to society about why the wealth gap was created. And if we're not talking about wealth redistribution in some form of reparations, we're not talking about the root causes. So that. I mean, that, that's the root cause. So, so I, so I, I'm trying to, I, you know, I, I try to focus, I'm trying to focus on how to get us out the hole and what, what some solutions are and some practicals, you know, trying to get some practical solutions. Um, and uh, one of the things that, again, we're trying to see is, how, you know, one, insurance. It's, it's a shame to see when folks pass in my neighborhood, people are doing uh, GoFundMe accounts. I mean, it's a shame that you can't even bury your dead. That's, that's, that's a problem, right? That's a problem with people where we, we pass on debt to the next generation. So insurance is a very important thing that we have to, we have to make sure that we, uh, we, we get and we're properly trained on what type of insurance or protection, right? Um, home ownership, very important, right? Difficult but important to make sure that we save um, uh, uh, you know, we save to be able to purchase a home and make sure you, your credit is good to be able to purchase. Uh, and how, you know, however you do that, wherever you can, you, wherever you, can, you know, be owner. Also, th in this day and age, as a politician, we push for higher wages, we push for union jobs or what have you, but many of you will now have to get your own job or get a side hustle or what have you, right? So we have to, we have to help identify the opportunities in getting uh, another job or you or seeing how you can get something on the internet economy or how to start your own business and then we're also focusing on how do we many of us many people from minority uh, families or many people from uh, from immigrant families your 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 family had a immigrant business or what have you and we find that oftentimes when the parent dies the business dies how do we that went to fancy law school went to whatever kind of school how do we scale up that business, right? Many of us work in other areas where we scale, where we work and we do M&As and other kinds of businesses. How do we scale up our parents' business, the legacy business? So these are certain you know, practical things that we, can, that we should do moving forward. Peace. Uh, I came here.
because of the black banks and the racial gap. And I've heard you speak about everything, yes, about uh, except the root cause. I thought this brother was going to hit on the root cause for the racial for the uh, wealth gap is white supremacy. White supremacy. Everything that you are speaking about, you as the assemblyman and the rest of us up in here as uh, accredited, uh, educated people, we all help to continue the wealth gap because we support the system of white supremacy. We need to create, as African people and people who are the victims, we need to create a think tank that will think out the box and how to shut this down. That's what we need to do. We need to shut this down. All of this, it almost shut down in 2008 and then we had to start all over again, but they, they started up again. This is not gonna work. Nothing we're saying up here is gonna work. You, I like what you are saying. Everybody else is beating around the bush and is not talking about what your book is talking about. Thank you. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> Let, let me say, let me say, I have the liberty of being an academic, so I can talk without having to go to a boss that tells me that I got to put it in action. So, but you know, I think uh, white supremacy is right. <laughs> Let's give our, our panelists another round of applause. This was incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So we have uh, wine and, and some other refreshments in the back. Please join us in the back for fellowship. Marisa is going to be signing her book. Uh, please join us back in the back and purchase a book. Thank you.